So why do we bother? Why do we bother? Because I know some of you have found this distance that I've been just this distance between us now and them back then. I know some of you have found that hard, and uh, although I know some of you have loved it as well. So you get a bit of both, and I thank you both for feedback, or those people, uh, for that sort of feedback. It's really helpful for me. Why do we study the Old Testament? I want to spend just a couple minutes answering that question briefly, because it's a really important question. Why do we do that, and why do we study the book of 1 Samuel, uh, for example? Well, I think the answer that stands out above the rest is that Jesus says that these words are his words. They point us to him. They help us know him. So following his resurrection, there's a wonderful scene that's described in Luke chapter 24 where Jesus walked with and he spoke with and he taught these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, which is just a bit bit south of Jerusalem. And at first, um, they don't realise who they're speaking to, these two disciples. After some discussion, finally, uh, Jesus says this to them. It's pretty straight to the point. He says, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? Now, they've just been talking about Jesus' betrayal, his rejection, his death on the cross, and then into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, beginning with Moses means the first five books of the Bible. That's the, the, the Pentateuch, it's called. And then the, the prophets is the rest. So he says here that Moses and the prophets concern himself. Jesus says in 1 Samuel, uh, Jesus says that 1 Samuel and the rest of the Old Testament concern him, they point to him. Now, we can... We can follow this up again in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 to 17, and 1, 2 Corinthians later on as well. They tell us that all scripture is God-breathed, and the all scripture uh, might mean just the Old Testament or the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's debatable. But anyway, it doesn't really matter for our discussion right now, that all scripture is God-breathed. It comes from the word of God, even 1 Samuel. It's his words. Uh, and all God's promises, the ones that we read about in the Old Testament has been referred to there, point to Jesus, a yes in Jesus. See, friends, what, what, like the apostles who wrote the Gospels, the letters and the other parts of the New Testament, as your pastor, who loves you dearly, um, I want you to love Jesus, uh, to remain in him by remaining in his words, as Jesus says in John 15. I want your hearts to burn Now, those are the words that those two disciples said on the road to to Emmaus, said to the other disciples as they reported back about the conversation to Jesus. They they, They said, our hearts burned hearing what Jesus said about how the Old Testament points to him. You see, the richness of knowing and loving Jesus doesn't come to us in a vacuum. It doesn't come to us in isolation, uh, separate from history, God's salvation history that we read in the whole Bible. The richness of knowing Jesus comes to, uh, and loving Jesus, comes when we know him and we love him as the perfect king. The perfect king, the perfect King Saul, the perfect King David, the perfect Solomon, and so on, who guides and leads his people and mediates for his people. The perfect prophet who speaks the word of God because Jesus is the word of God who came into this world in flesh and blood 
and the perfect priest, our great high priest, who sacrificed himself for us, for our sin. So why don't we pray now and ask God to work powerfully by his spirit as we open his word so that we hear his words and we put them into practice. And why don't we pray that our hearts would burn. And it's not easy listening sometimes. It's, It's hard work. So we pray that God helps us with that. And we pray that our hearts would burn as we understand a bit more about God's kingdom, as we understand a bit more about Jesus, we'd learn to love Jesus more. So why don't you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, we, um, we thank you for your, your word. We thank you, God, that we can read it freely. We thank you, Lord, that um, books like 1 Samuel help us to know you and love you better, Lord Jesus. Uh, help us to understand that and, and work hard at it. It's not always easy. Help us to listen well and um, help me to be clear as, and, and faithful to your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me ask you a question as we, as we begin. I know I've started already in some ways, so switch back on if you switched off then. Uh, let, let, let me ask you this question. What hope, is there in, what hope is there in this world that our prayer, your kingdom come on earth, we're going to pray it in a few moments after Michelle prays for us, what hope is there in this world that our prayer, your kingdom come on earth, will be answered, that God's kingdom will advance in the world? The more people come to know Jesus and God's church will grow. What hope in the world have we got? Well, there are signs of hope. Let me show you some. So I was away during the week at our Wollongong Regional Conference for ministry workers. And uh, I, we heard some great stories, great stories of, of, um, uh, of, of growth, of training leaders, of missionaries being sent and supported, of plans and strategies for, for growth of churches. Should all that give me hope? Well, yeah. Yeah, it's good. What about just us? Let's just focus on our church for a moment, all right? Our attendance in small groups is growing. Our youth ministry is growing. Five of our ribs teenagers started following Jesus last month. We're a generous church. Uh, Our budget's in good shape. We're even in a position to increase our staff. Pretty good. More people are serving, putting their names on rosters and that sort of thing. People are volunteering to clean toilets. Oh, that's pretty good. Should that give me hope? Uh, yeah, I think so. See, I take it we as God's church, we keep turning up, uh, we keep serving, we keep praying, we keep giving because we are hopeful that God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, is advancing. I mean, and we want to be part of that action. We want to be in on it. We see the value of giving our lives to this gospel, this, um, this Jesus movement. I don't really like that term, but you know what I mean? Now, I, I don't want to put a dampener on anything, not at all. And, and I don't want to, don't, don't, on all this enthusiasm and our delight in the work of God, but let's pray that our hopes have deep roots. So let's also pray that we'll, we will so know God and his ways that our joy will survive, in fact, our joy will thrive even when numbers decline in church. Even when that strategy we really thought was a winner just falls flat. Or the money doesn't come in. Or even if our freedom to express our faith in this country is curtailed. So here's my conviction. That is that this story of Saul coming to the throne of Israel can help us with this very thing, can help this very thing to happen, our hopes having deeper roots. 
See, the story of Saul is an account of the remarkable commitment of God to establish his kingdom. Okay, let's just get up to speed with 1 Samuel. I've been away for a couple of weeks or whatever. Let me... Uh, oops, wrong one. Uh, maybe that was the right one. Hmm. Now I'm lost. Well, let's just go with that. Let's go with it anyway. That was, the, that was the part of the Lord's Prayer. And I think we're here. That's good enough. Let's go with that. That's a very vague picture. Um, so here's where we're up to. All right. Uh, so that the people of Israel had made a strategy of their own for securing the nation. Do you remember what that strategy was? That strategy was to ask the prophet or demand from the prophet to give us a king, to give them a king, so that they could be like the other nations. You remember that? Now, the account then followed this young man, Saul, you know, the guy who, who won Israel's top model. Um, now, Saul, unknown to him, was sent by God to Samuel to be appointed as leader, not yet king, but as leader of God's people and save them from the dreaded Philistines. So that was sort of chapter, chapter 9. Samuel made known the word of God to Saul, which included an instruction to act against the Philistines at Gibeah uh, once the Spirit of the Lord had rushed upon him. A bit like Samson, right? Remember Samson, the long-haired muscles, tore down temples and or buildings and so forth. However, Saul, what did he do? He sat on his hands, didn't do anything. And when Uncle Kish, we're calling him Uncle Kish, we don't really know his name, but he was Saul's uncle, so Uncle Kish it is. When Uncle Kish uh, interrogated him, at, well, he said nothing about the momentous word that had been spoken to him by Samuel. He just talked about donkeys. So that's where we're at. Well, in chapter 17... Samuel calls all the people together at Mizpah. Now, let me show you where Mizpah is. Pretty small map, but what I can show you here, it's the best one I can find. There's Bethlehem, there's Jerusalem, there's Gibeah, there's Mizpah. All right? So that's the Mediterranean Sea. There you go. Good. All right, that'll, that'll probably do us. Um, Mizpah. Now, why Mizpah? Well, it's a little like the principal's office at school. You're not usually called to the principal's office at school when you're not usually called to go there for good news. Now, there's some leftover pavlova from the staff meeting. Any thought of you? No, not really. Doesn't usually happen. They're the sort of dreams I have. Um, I had as a student anyway. No, no, no. It's usually about sin and judgment. That's what Mizpah is about. See, in the past, the reasons for gathering at Mizpah was Israel's sin and particularly their worshipping of foreign gods. And as they gathered, they would be judged by Samuel. Now, judged because that's what Samuel did. He was the last. He's the last of the judges. Remember, that's where we're at the end of the period of the judges and starting the period of kings, so to speak. So here in 10 verse 17, Samuel's summons to assemble to the Lord at Mizpah suggests that the sins of mixing it up, worshipping the gods of the nations, had reared its ugly head again. It was time for renewed repentance if Israel were to be delivered from the Philistines. 
Now Samuel's speech in verses 17 to 19, if you've got it there in front of you, it'll be very helpful, had three simple but devastating points. Here's the first. First, there is a reminder of all that God has done. Notice that Samuel is bringing the word of God to them. So that phrase, this is what the, the God of Israel said. That's sort of common language for prophets. That's how they start their speeches. So the focus is on God's rescue of the people from Egypt. Why is that? Well, because that's what God is like. That's a good summary, act, a summary statement. This, is, this sums up what God is like. God is a God who saves. He saves his people. He delivers them from powers that would harm them. And, of course, the implication is obvious with the Philistines breathing down their neck. And you can see them. They're, they're, um, basically, they're, they're all along Amorites, Ammonites, Moabites, all that sort of area there. Okay. Next, Samuel's focus is on what Israel had done. Asking for a king. Now, if you look at your Bible, so you can notice that the focus in verse 18 is I, what God has done. And then look at the first two words of verse 19. But you, but you. You see, God had proven himself again and again as redeemer and rescuer. And their response, give us a king like the other nations. That's their response. Give us a king to replace you. That's got to be the heart of sinfulness, hasn't it? Rejecting God means rejecting your saviour. There was a tragic story uh, brought to light just recently, last couple of weeks, by a coronial inquiry of the death of a bushwalker, uh, his name was Trevor Tolput, I think it was, who made a series of poor decisions while he was walking the overland track in Tasmania, Cradle Mountain Walk, that walk. Um, it's a dangerous walk. Uh, even in summer, and, and especially so in winter, the weather can change at any moment. You need to be well prepared. I'd love to do this walk, by the way. It looks great. Um, but it's dangerous. It really is. And towards the end of the walk, he was not in a good way. Uh, he was on his own. That's his first mistake, really, doing that sort of walk on your own. And then he was freezing with inadequate uh, clothing and supplies, but this was what, the, what was most staggering about this story, is that he turned, down two, he turned down help by at least two sets of walkers. At least two. He turned them down. A saviour came twice who could have saved his life. But in his pride, he rejected those saviours. See, we need to remember the concept of king, well, it's not a huge issue. It's an issue, but it's not a big one. But the betrayal of asking to be like the other nations, the betrayal of, um, of uh, the desire to no longer be the Lord's people, the betrayal and foolishness of rejecting their saviour, that's the problem. That's the problem we have here. And that was really their sinfulness and why they've been called to Mizpah. Well, if you were taking... So you were standing there at Mizpah on the plains... And a lot of people gathered together. I think a lot of, it took a while for everyone to come. And if you were standing there and if you were taking the prophet's words seriously that day, then you would have been trembling in your sandals. What will he say next? What's next? When, when a prophet starts with God's goodness and then of their guilt, it's a sure bet that God's punishment is coming next. Well, let's see what he does. 
the third little part of this little speech. We read the words, so now, now therefore, you could say. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. Hmm. Well, he gives no hint about what's about to happen, does he? They continue to hold their breath, I guess. So in verse 20, when Samuel had all... When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Phew! Whew, they got chosen first. A sign of relief comes across the other tribes. Now, we can understand this process as some type of Lot process. In, uh, in our youth ministry, um, it's called Ribs, Robertson Youth Bible Study. Uh, we, we play an elimination game called Sit Down If. Now, this is what happens. We get everyone to stand up, and what we try to do is we, the leader who's leading the game uh, has one person in mind to finish to be left standing. That's how it sort of works. And so you ask questions to eliminate people. So, for example, um, might, uh, might say, sit down if you go to Mosfile High. Now, that would eliminate quite a few people, so it's not a good question to start, actually. Better to say, sit down if you, had, if you brushed your teeth with Colgate. So about five people might sit down. That knocks off a few. All right? Then we might say, sit down if you, I don't know, you've got to make sure that person who you want left standing didn't brush their teeth at Colgate. Though. That's really important. Otherwise, the game's ruined. Um, anyway, you get the idea. Okay? That's that game. Now, I, I, it's, it's said that this process is a little bit like that, except under the control of the sovereign God. So it's, it's, it's eliminating people so there's one left standing. And you might be able to guess who that one left standing might be. We'll get to that in a minute. Verse 21. Then he brought forth the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan. That's how it sort of split up. Matri's clan was first. Finally, Saul of Kish was taken. Okay, so why is Saul selected? Now, we might know the answer. Uh, but the people at the time, they might have been, may have been led to believe that this gathering is a process of punishment. Saul's been let out. Perhaps it is because Saul has not yet acted on the Philistines. He had not yet acted on the word of God. Perhaps Saul was wondering the same thing. Maybe that's why he hid. So halfway through verse 21, but when they looked for him, he was not found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he's hidden himself among the supplies. Now, he wouldn't be the first and certainly not the last person to hide if he thought punishment was coming their way. Isn't that true? When I was at school, don't get any ideas, you young people. When I was at school, if we wanted to get out of a detention or get out of being in trouble, we used to go and hide in the toilets. Teachers can't come in the toilets. No, you can't do that. Definitely no, no. And there we sat all lunchtime. Not sure who got the punishment, actually, when I think about it. But that's what we did. Of course, I never got in trouble like that at all. I was a very good boy. Um, now, alas, there were no toilets at Mizpah. Verse 23, they ran and they brought him out. Didn't hide very well, did he? And as he stood among the people, well, he was a head taller than any of the others. Well, we know that, don't we, already? This is the kind of king that people wanted. Someone a bit imposing. Someone who could fight their battles. 
Someone when you look at him and you go, oh, I'm not taking them on. That's the sort of king that they wanted. Goliath comes on the scene a little while later on. But Goliath's a good example. We want a king like that. Look at the size of him. He's imposing. We want that sort of king. A king like the other nations have. Well, Samuel's next words are astonishing, really. Look at verse 24. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There, was no, there is no one like him among all the people. Now, these words are astonishing because Saul is said to be God's choice. Which is also emphasised by the well, what I've called the sit-down-if process, if that's a correct uh, interpretation of it. It's the, Lord, the Lord's choice. The Lord has chosen. See, earlier it was the people's choice to have a king, wasn't it? They demanded a king. Give us a king, like the other nations. And here, this is the Lord's choice. Well, in any case, they shouted, long live the king. So what would this mean for Israel? Well, it appears they're getting the king they asked for. What would this mean for Israel? Would this mean that Israel would indeed be like all the other nations? Would they stop being the Lord's people? Well, we know it's not quite as simple as that. God's purpose for Saul was that Israel would continue to be my people, my inheritance, my heritage. Remember that from last week? Despite their attempts to reject the Lord. Well, what Samuel did next was very important. Verse 25. Samuel explained to the people the regulations or the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Don't you, don't you wonder what he wrote down? I do. Wonder what he wrote down. Well, we're not really told. Uh, maybe some sort of trendy mission statement or manifesto using the words community, engaging or intentional again and again. Maybe he wrote that down. Uh, I don't think so. Last time he spoke of the rights and duties or the regulations of kingship, it was a warning in chapter 8 of kings who take, take, take. Remember that? He spoke of the injustices of kingship. Uh, maybe this time he would speak of and write down the justice of kingship. Now, of course, we don't know for sure what he wrote. Uh, it's not recorded. Don't you wish it was recorded? I do. Anyway. But I wonder if he shaped his words around Deuteronomy 17. Now, that probably doesn't come to mind as a memory verse straight away, so I'm going to read it out to you. If you've got a Bible there, you'd look it up, but it's actually up on the screen. Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20. I wonder if these were some of the words that Samuel wrote down and deposited before the Lord. Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it and you say let us set a king over us like all the nations around us so this is by the way this is on the, in the, in, not on the promised land yet Moses is preaching to them before they enter the promised land fascinating so far isn't it verse 15 be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses he must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. 
When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites or turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. It's fascinating, isn't it? Fascinating. So there's the justice of the kingdom. There it is. God's kingdom, God's king, kingship. Israel's king was not to be like the other nations. He was not to take, but he was to reign under the Lord his God, obeying his word. Uh, you know, it seems like God's pulled a bit, pulled a bit of a swifty on, uh, on Israel. See, that they got a king like the other nations. God gave them over to that. But this king was to reign unlike the kings of the other nations. That's how he was to do it. Well, finally, and just to rub it in a bit further, in verses 25 and 26, Samuel sends everyone home. He sends Saul home too. Hold on, didn't he just, didn't he just make a king? Didn't we just have a king appointed? Shouldn't Saul sit on a throne somewhere and high and mighty up in Jerusalem or something like that? Oh no, I don't know. God is king. God is king. He calls the shots through his prophet. It's his kingdom that counts. Saul's first act as king of Israel was to obey the prophet Samuel. That's his first act. That's who's really in charge. That's the justice of the kingdom. That's what kingship really means. Saul must submit to the prophet the word of God. King or no king, God will rule his people, and now, now they're king, by his word. But as we read in verses 26 to 27, uh, not everyone was for this arrangement. Some troublemakers, we read, other translations have um, uh, scoundrels. I like that word better, scoundrels. We might say haters. <laughs> Some haters turned up, all right? And these haters would insist that Israel still be like the other nations. But some others, well, God touched their hearts. It's a great little phrase there in verse 27. Well, the story of King Saul is really only just warming up. Really is. It just, but one thing is already really crucially clear. Whether Israel has a king or not, what mattered was God's kingdom. Overall, it's God's kingdom that must and will prevail. Now, I wonder if we... It, if we see today what this says about our strategies, our schemes, our plans, training, abilities, leadership models, those things we like to put in place to give us hope. But the truth is the kingdom of God is what prevails. Now some will be unimpressed by this and even despise the ways of the kingdom. They'll want strategies like all the other nations, like all the nations, perhaps like what we see in a corporate world, marketing and so forth. To some, the ways of the kingdom of God is foolishness and weakness. What do you mean you keep preaching from the Bible? Why do you do that? Indeed, it'll only be those whose hearts are touched by God 
who will welcome the strategy, our mission statement, if you like, where all human power and cleverness submits to the word of God. That's our mission statement, if you want one today. That's why, as we read in 2 Corinthians 4, we renounce secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception or distort the word of God. But we set forth the truth plainly and we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Our hope that the kingdom of God will come does not rest on any form of human power or wisdom, but on the one whose kingdom it is. How about I pray and ask God to help us with that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your kindness in giving us your word and speaking to us and revealing yourself to us. Lord, those last two verses, we didn't focus much on them, but uh, there are some who doubt your ways, who doubt that your kingdom is uh, the way your the way the gospel advances. Lord, we ask that uh, we won't be like that. We would trust in your ways. As we read in 2 Corinthians, Lord, we trust that we won't distort the word of God, we won't do anything that tricks people, but we'll just present Jesus Christ as Lord. Uh, Lord, help us to listen and obey your word and put it into practice. Lord, thank you that you love us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died for us on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that, uh, that we have church today gathering together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. We've got to just get a few minutes. Um